Good morning, glad you could join us. The kids are back in school in Broward and Miami-Dade counties and for the first time, every school has a police officer or a guardian on duty. That is now state law, a mandate that is part of tightened security at Florida schools in response to the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. A charter school in Davie opened this week without an officer nor guardian on duty, though administrators there cited difficulties finding someone qualified. Concerned MSD public safety commissioners demanded Broward school superintendent close that school as unsafe. They also laid into to him for what they consider a long overdue investigation into the actions of five Douglas High administrators. Robert Runcie is with us to talk all about that and more. He is Broward School Superintendent since 2011, overseeing the district's 271,000 plus students in 337 schools and 30,000 plus employees. So great. Mr. Renzi, to have you with us, Superintendent, this morning. Thanks for coming. Yeah, Thank you for having me. We are so glad you're here. When school started in mm -hmm. Broward, there were reports that more than two dozen schools, charter schools, did not have the state-mandated security officer or police officer on duty. And now it turned out to be actually one school. Is that right? A championship yes. academy in Davie. So it is right that there was only one school. It isn't correct that there were 29 schools or so that were not compliant. Um, what occurred with that list of 29 was something that was asked for us at 8 p.m. the night before the commission met and they asked for us to identify schools who we believed at that moment in time did not have some long-term plan. That's very different than being in compliance today and tomorrow and so what we've done which um, is probably a little different than most districts because we certainly understand um, the scrutiny we're under. I've asked staff to not only um, look at information that the charters give us uh, certifying their compliance, but also to audit and check. And on the first day of school, we had staff actually go out into the field to determine and ensure that, they were that staffed. and we found one where that was not the case. Now things do happen, but in this case, they knowingly open that school, recognizing that they would not have any protection for the first two days of school. Um, in fact, when we looked at the schedule, we identified up to 16 days in which that was not the case. So but, that, but, they, but they paid a price. They paid, they paid a price, um, and we are very clear. Uh, we will accept no compromises to ensuring the safety of students uh, in Broward County. Uh, and we are ensuring that everyone is in compliance with um, state law. It's the right thing to do. And so I think this is, the, we, this decision was done though, and I, again, to a credit to our school board, who always puts the children first. Um, the decision we made was not only to uh, revoke the license for the charter, but we did something that we haven't done before, which is we've kept the entire family of students and teachers together so those relationships could continue and minimize the impact yeah. on the students. All right, Superintendent, I want to I jump right in here, which this is something that I think is the, the public perception. What, what you just said was this school, you took action on this school because they were not in compliance, you mm -hmm. held them accountable, but it was two days that they were open before any accountability. So what the, the two days, what was going on in that two days where the district did not hold them accountable on the first day of school no. without no, a, that, a that, guardian? That's, that's not correct. We went there the first day, we noticed them, and we immediately put a, an item on the board agenda to terminate the, the charter. So it was the process you had so to go So it was a process. In fact, that, that was 
and play the first day of, of um, when school opened. So uh, we, we took action immediately when this occurred. In fact, we went over and, and we had staff there at the charter and helping to navigate things so that they could actually yeah. get someone on campus. So they had an officer by the end of the day, on the second day, but again, we, we ha had concerns that this, the, the law was violated. And, yes. and you knew that this school was having issues since March, and the, the, the letters and emails go back to March. You were on it. You were seeing what they were doing, the difficulties that they were having. And in fact, all schools had more than a year. This is a law in the books from March 2018, yeah, and, right? And, so mm -hmm. what, what is your issue as a superintendent with these schools that had so much time coming down to the wire this week in their contracts, be them short or long term? Well, I, I think they, they need to understand that this is something that needs to be taken very seriously. Yes, you had over a year. Back in 2018, I had staff sitting in front of um, charter school operators and administrators and saying you need to follow the state law, that what's required that we have a safe school office on every campus. There were some that felt that the law didn't apply to them. So that was clarified in Senate Bill 7030 this past May. And once that was passed, the Commissioner of Education sent correspondence out to the charters and districts saying you have to comply. Um, we had numerous meetings with charters. We laid out various options for them to comply with state law, um, do a contract with a uh, municipality for a, a school resource officer. Um, you can schedule someone for the a guardian program. You can go in, ahead and, and contract with a third party service um, that has individuals who are certified. There are numerous options that were out there and we continue to work with charters to help them to take advantage of those. All right, at this school in Davie, yes. 532 students, I don't know how many faculty, uh, essentially the school board has what? T the district has taken over the school? I mean, the kids yeah. are still the, in the that The kids facility? are still there, the um, teachers are there, uh, we're managing the school, we're making sure that they're in compliance with state law. In fact, one of the things we've done, um, areas where we've seen there's been what we feel a gap in resources. We've added things like counselors, um, social workers, uh, other staff personnel positions that we would have in any of our schools. So we're gonna treat that school and provide them the resources as we would any other school in Broward County. Are you letting other charter schools get by without counselors, without the resources? Uh, well, let, let, well, let me just say this. That school is under our management now. There's two types of schools in Broward County. There's yeah. district managed schools, there's charter managed schools. Charter managed schools are independent of the district. They have their own governing board. They have their own set of policies, rules. We have limited um, ability to govern a charter. We, we can help enforce state law and hold them accountable and revoke the charter. Outside of that, we can't uh, manage the charter. Superintendent, this week, the, uh, the commission, my um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Commission, was very critical about the investigation of your district into the five administrators, five employees at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the principal, two assistant principals, a school safety a specialist, yeah. I think I'm, yes. I may have his term wrong, but yeah. um, your investigation into their actions or inactions that led up to that massacre on February 14th of last year, what, what is taking so long? Are they, are they yeah. right in their criticism? Um, I mean, you hired, you hired, excuse me, you've hired a law firm. That's correct. Last November, and they were supposed to have a report by April. Why, why no, we, 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 we hired the, the firm. Um, it, it, was, it was a little bit late, later than that. But let me just say, say this, that 
Uh, one of the things that was missed around this, folks say, well, you know, why didn't you like start in 2018? Um, the chair of the commission reminded everyone that it was the commission right. that asked us to stop um, our work and wait till they completed theirs and we would be able to use that information. We hired a firm. Um, they are doing a thorough job. They're going through every single piece of documentation um, that's, that's required. They're working with the investigators from the MSD Commission. They've completed a couple of the investigations so far. Those individuals have been noticed with the report. Uh, they're going through our, our due process within the district. Mm -hmm. And the last uh, update I received from the firm uh, was that they believe they should be done within 90 days with the remainder of the um, investigations. Yeah. That's well, taken us to about October. You know, so Mr. yes, I, I agree yeah. that it's not being done as um, fast as it should be, but we have to make sure it's done right. I put lots of pressure on them and try to make sure we could expedite it, but I, I can't change the, the work being done properly. And I, I wish we could have had it done faster, but I can assure everyone it's being done as fast as possible and it's being done correctly. And that's what we want. These first weeks of schools, Broward and Miami-Dade districts were responding to phone threats and social media scares that they simply cannot ignore. Local 10's Jeff Weinsier starts off our discussion. The latest kid in court, a 14-year-old Don Sofer Aventura High School student who allegedly posted a picture of himself on Snapchat with a gun. The caption read, watch out at school tomorrow. It hasn't stopped. We are continuously being bombarded. Prosecutor Maria Schneider has been head of the juvenile division in Broward for 22 years. It's the frequency of the problem. Since school started, Nova, MacArthur, and Aventura High School students have been arrested for making threats. Dillard High School was evacuated after a threat. Schneider says there are new cases every week, many the media doesn't hear about. We're seeing, you know, honor students, straight A students. We're talking thousands and thousands of dollars in terms of time and resources. Are most just joking? I, I, it's hard to tell. We can't tell them apart, and we can't afford, because of the potential seriousness, to take any of them lightly. In the juvenile division, the goal is not to throw someone in jail. It's about rehabilitation, very expensive, long-term psychological evaluations that we pay for. So a kid that texts or puts out, I want to shoot up the school, mm -hmm. could technically be back in that school after going through these programs? Yes. We are tracking every um, student, um, and every student that has any type of threat, even if it's not one of the serious ones that you mentioned. Schools are investing in threat assessment teams, money that's not going to educate our kids. Last year, we quadrupled the number of threat assessments um, just by the nature of some of the requirements by the new law that was put in place. Does the system work? You know, that's the million-dollar question. Um, I have to believe that it does. Does it work for everyone? Unfortunately, we know that it doesn't. The 14-year-old's attorney claims the gun in the post was a BB gun. Nonetheless, the judge is holding him in custody until a psych evaluation and a threat assessment can be done. For This Week in South Florida, I'm Jeff here. Jeff, thanks very much. Well, Superintendent, what do you think accounts for this rash of threats from young men, mainly young white boys who you know, are threatening to shoot up schools. What's going on? I, I, you know, I, I don't have a handle on what the cause is. I think there are lots of things out there that we certainly can look into. I mean, I, I think what we need to do is to make sure that as a entire community um, that we're on alert. 
um, and that we work together to make sure we can address these things and they can be actually identified and stopped. So for example, I continue to encourage every single person in our community to download our Safer Watch app, which we've worked with law enforcement, where you see something, say something, and send something. Um, those are being looked at. It's actually sent to law enforcement and the district at the same time. Um, there's also the Fortify Florida piece, but really notification is one. The second thing I will tell you is that um, as part of our, our, our safety infrastructure that we've invested heavily in in this district, we've created three research analyst positions where they're spending their time on social media to identify issues hmm. um, that So emerge. they're reading social media yes, sites right. looking for So those, those positions, we're in the process of actually hiring them and placing them. They will be in place this year okay. um, as another layer um, that, that's out there. Um, so, you know, there's, that's just what we have to continue to do. It, it's, it's an unfortunate situation, but uh, what I will say this is because of the advent of social media and the proliferation of this, we have opportunities to, to get signs and, and notices of this. The last thing I would say is this is a very, very serious situation. These are felony offenses. And, and children will be prosecuted for doing this. Um, so what we've done is we actually have Judge Tudor and Judge Elijah Williams uh, from the, the court system. They've actually uh, created, we've created a message with them, a public service announcement, which I'm going to introduce um, this coming week at our school board meeting, and then we're gonna show that regularly so that parents in the community have conversations with your kids. This is not a joking matter. You know, you, you bring up something like exactly what I was gonna ask you about is that this is, I mean, Every parent has to be just so frightened that this seems to be a new normal, not just in South Florida, but across the country. And one of the real issues in juvenile justice is you take a juvenile, one of them said it was, oh, it was a joke, the boy from Aventura, then posted it was a joke. Of course, no one's taking it as a joke. No, as, as a joke. But, but when you come down to prosecuting a juvenile for something like this, the difficulty is in the balance of a kid who doesn't want to be marked for life with a, uh, as a criminal if yes. he really or she is not one. But having the type of consequences that prevent that juvenile from yeah. being a criminal. Yeah. Speak, if you would, to the criminal justice, juvenile justice aspect of that balance. M much of what the Promise program that the district is doing also faces that, that real yeah, balance. Yeah, so there's been, and I thank you for that, I, I would say, you know, if you put it in context of, um, first of all, these type of offenses would uh, not be eligible for promise felony offenses, criminal offenses um, are not. But are eligible uh, for arrest. They, they absolutely are eligible for arrest and so that is a big fundamental question in our society, right? Do we want to incarcerate and punish or do we want to create consequences and rehabilitate and, and help people learn and improve from their situation? Um, I think we've, as a society, shifted, um, you know, in, in the 60s, 70s, uh, you know, with gut, the, the tough on crime stance we've taken nationally, um, and it's really been more about incarceration and punishment, but at some point, um, these individuals, are, you know, they get released from incarceration, um, they're in our society, and we haven't really done anything to rehabilitate them to integrate and become productive members of society. So it's a conversation that needs to be had at a national level of what we're actually going to do in this country relative to our criminal justice system. Yeah, Mr. Superintendent, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Safety Commission this week has said merge the Promise program, which you began six years ago, with, I think, every good intention. Maybe it sort of got out of hand, got too lenient, in the opinion of many, yes. but to okay. merge that with the juvenile diversion program, 
run by the state attorney because one program really doesn't know what the other one is doing. Is merging these two programs well, the way to go? Well, first of all, let me, we need to step back and understand the context in which the Promise program emerged. This isn't something that came from the school district, right? This arose from uh, requests by law enforcement agencies, the public defender, state attorney, Children's Service Council, teachers unions, lots of folks in the community that identified a problem. That problem was that students, uh, young people, whether they were in school or out of school, who committed these minor misdemeanor offenses, which didn't warrant them going right. into the they juvenile justice. up in the criminal justice no, system. No, no, they, they didn't because those the, these offenses did not warrant that. So the state attorney, they would send them back to like the district, and we would oh, apply we would apply discipline to them, which was basically suspensions. We've suspended over fifty thousand kids a year, and so what would happen is once you're suspended. You have, you go to what's called alternative to external suspensions, such as one of our facilities, Lanier James, or you sit at home or you're on the streets. So law enforcement were picking these kids up on the streets, getting into trouble, and said, why are you out here? So, oh, we're suspended from school. So they get their three-year, five-day suspensions on the street, they're getting into more trouble, and then they're back in school. Promise came about to, one, make sure they had consequences. Number two, that they were in some place where they were actually um, uh, learning from what they were doing. They were being supervised. They were getting wraparound services. They were getting interventions, and they were getting involved in restorative justice. So if we take the Promise program away, this community is going to have to have an answer to what are we going to do with these kids? Are we going to put them out on the street again, or are we going to actually do something that's going to provide interventions but and help. The, the, the knock on the Promise program was that kids who commit fairly serious offenses were getting not only second but third and fourth and fifth but, chances and were endangering their behavior, endangered their school environment. Th that's not accurate because life-threatening um, felony criminal-related offenses are not eligible for Promise. That is a mis piece of misinformation right, that's well out there. Set the record straight. So, so the, 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 the record straight is that um, those, those type of incidents are not eligible for promise. Only about 3% of 50,000 suspensions that we have annually are eligible for the promise program. And that is consistent with state statute that identifies what these things are. Now, there was amendments that were made to the law that impacted programs like promise, which, by the way, versions of it exist around the state. We've made those modifications. One of the things that you mentioned is these repeat um, yeah. constant bites at the yeah. Apple. Um, so we've limited, you have three potential times that you can interact with Promise over your entire um, academic career in Broward County. And what I would say to you, even going prior to that, this narrative that there were all these kids are getting, I looked at the data myself. And one of the pieces of data I looked at, I said, okay, students that had three or more offenses in one year, that went and had multiple offenses, three or more offenses in subsequent years. And I looked at that over the first four or five years of the program, I found 11. And, and half of those students weren't even at any of our traditional schools. So nevertheless, so I suggested, look, let's go change it because it's not really having an impact on, on the students that we're trying to serve and assist through this program. But isn't the problem what you see is not a total picture. You see what's in school. Whereas this child could be committing some sort of offenses that has nothing to do with school and, and, mm -hmm. and you would never know. And conversely, the state attorney's office wouldn't know what you know when they bring this child in for something. And so wouldn't that be a reason 
and a good reason to merge the program so everyone's on the same page. Look, so the sharing of information as, and, and so if there's a way to improve information and, and that's uh, an actual valid concern that's out there, I think it's something that we could look at. But at the end of the day, I go back to why did we create this? And we need to somehow be able to provide this kind of service um, to, to, to these students. And I would say that law enforcement has access to um, student information whenever they need to, right? So uh, the SROs who are on campus, uh, when some incident occurs out in the community, they can contact us, we share the information. I don't know of cases where law enforcement has asked us for information about a particular student and we have not shared that. So that is available. One of the, uh, the topics that comes up is, you know, unfettered real-time access to all student data, yeah. Yeah. and we're just not at yeah. a position There's where confidentiality we, involved there as well. But the, I, I don't worry about confidentiality when um, life safety issues are on top, but why yeah. open up a whole entire database for no reason, when there's an actual incident involving a juvenile, that information becomes available to law enforcement um, as, as needed. But again, we will always explore opportunities to better serve uh, our kids, um, to make sure that we have a system that holds them accountable and that we can address the um, safety needs in our community. Yeah. So that's an ongoing conversation as we continue to look to improve that program and work with our community partners. We, Robert Runcie, we thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Glenna Milberg, back with you on the This Week in South Florida podcast. We had a great roundtable today and questions raised we really didn't get to answer during the week on Florida's Stand Your Ground law. So let's pick it up there. Uh, it is in the news this week. Our roundtable today was Sean Foreman from Barry University, political professor. Melba Pearson, Deputy Director of the ACLU of Florida and former prosecutor with Miami-Dade. Scott Travis, ACE reporter for the Sun Sentinel covering all things Broward schools plus so much more and it's great to have you in this discussion and Melba, let's start with you as the prosecutor among us. Um, the Stand Your Ground law on the books since 2005 really came into focus during the Trayvon Martin issue right. and that case. Uh, we can talk all about that, but this week there were two cases that really shined a light on the difficulties of stand your ground cases. Talk about that if you would. Sure, so there were two cases. One was in Pinellas County, um, which was the case of Michael Dretchka, who uh, shot and killed an unarmed black man, Michael McLaughlin, and, excuse me, Marquise McLaughlin. And um, the surveillance tape was a very critical piece of evidence in that trial because it became abundantly clear to the jury and the judge and everybody watching that uh, the victim, Mr. McLaughlin, was backing away and Michael Dretchka killed him even though he had no signs of a weapon, there was no imminent threat, and as a result, the jury found him guilty of the charge of manslaughter. Then moving here to Miami-Dade County, uh, Pablo Lyle had asserted uh, Sandra Ground defense. He filed a motion to dismiss his uh, manslaughter charges arising from a road rage incident where he got into an argument with a gentleman by the name of Mr. Hernandez. And while uh, it was a situation where Mr. Hernandez got out of his car, banged on the window, one of the passengers in Mr. Lyle's car got out, they were arguing. You know, the passenger gets back in the car. Uh, Mr. Hernandez, the victim, walks back towards his car. And then the defendant, Mr. Lyle, jumps out of the car, basically sucker punches Mr. Hernandez. He's hospitalized and later dies from his injuries. Also on tape. That was also on tape. And the judge viewed the tape and all the surrounding evidence, listening to everybody who was present, listening to their testimony. And then uh, 
did not grant that motion. He denied that stand your ground motion, um, leaving Mr. Lyle to have to try to go to trial with a you know, self-defense claim, but it doesn't look very strong going in. So the, the principle of the state law is that a citizen has the right to reasonably defend him or herself against uh, what he or she might perceive as a threat, a harm, harmful to them or their family. Um, Sean Foreman, we were talking about how this leaves so much open to subjective perception on what might be a threat. Uh, in the case of Trayvon Martin, we heard George Zimmerman talking about how threatened he felt. We never could hear Trayvon give his side of the story. In these two cases Melba just talked about, we watched that, well, we could watch them firsthand objectively play out on tape, which gave the jury and the judge and all involved a, a sort of firsthand decision-making ability that they didn't have. What is it about this law that's so, it's a difficult thing to, to judge it because is, of that. Yes, and so I think we have to start with the fact that uh, the interpretation of many laws is subjective depending on how it's interpreted and argued by the lawyers and judges who are involved. Um, and when we get into situations like this with life and death defense, um, when a, a, a murder has happened or someone has lost a life, then emotion also gets involved in the interpretation. Um, so <clears throat> the law itself is probably problematic, but I'm not sure that that's where the focus needs to be from lawmakers and citizens right now to try to repeal the law. Because for all of the discussion of stand your ground being a potentially problematic law because it could embolden citizens to um, shoot first and ask questions later, I, I don't see that it's being abused in the state of Florida. We have these two cases this week, which the um, you know, attempts to use that as a defense were, were denied, but we also have other instances over, over the recent years where stand your ground hasn't hold, held up. So what I'm trying to say is, yes, it is open to interpretation, um, but maybe we're getting um, reasonable uh, decisions throughout the state of Florida so far, and having the video, of course, helps, and we're getting more and more of that in situations moving forward. So I think people who are concerned with the law might um, feel satisfied that it's not being abused right now and may want to look at other ways of uh, dealing with changing laws on gun control more broadly. Well, you know, I, I want to bring Scott, Scott yeah. Travis into the conversation. <laughs> go, go ahead. Yeah, yeah well, um, I think the, the video uh, part is, is key because probably um, much more so than during the Trayvon Martin uh, time period, people have, there's more surveillance cameras, there's more people that uh, have a iPhone that has a camera on. You're there's always more, on camera. Yeah, more <laughs> likely that somebody's going to be uh, taking a picture of it and shooting a video. And, and we all know that once you, when you see a video, whether it's the, the uh, student in Coral Springs that was beaten by the police officer, when you see the video, it, it's hard to, that deniability. Is, is not as easy to do. So, um, I mean, even going back to the Rodney King days, I mean, that didn't come out with a, a verdict that was probably the most of us would think would be the right one, but at least in the sense of the public, we could see this is not right, what, what is happening. And um, I, I think that there's another issue with this too, and that is the racial component. Let's imagine that this was a, uh, 
a black man that was claiming stand your ground against a white man because he felt threatened. Hey, all these white people, they tend to be the mass shooters. I'm like afraid of this. What am I going to, how would the community feel about that? And would they suddenly take the side of, oh, stand your ground's a good law. Let's I, I just want it for, for audio purposes, without the visual here, I just want everyone to know that Melba just put up both hands in a, in a <laughs> yes. If there was audio with that, it would have been a yes. <laughs> Ms. Pearson. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I wholeheartedly agree um, because the bottom line is, you know, the, the Tampa Bay Times, I believe, did a really interesting spread maybe like two or three years ago on stand your ground throughout the state of Florida. And it showed very stark racial disparity. So if the shooter was white and the victim was black, the shooter claimed stand your ground, they were more likely for it to be granted in their favor as opposed to it being somebody who is a black shooter with a white person that ended up losing their lives. So that inherent flaw shows how this law has been applied in a biased fashion. Now I'm not calling anybody who, you know, maybe granted a motion for stand your ground racist or anything like that, but there is an optics here, there's an implicit bias here that can't be ignored. And when we have a law that is so flawed and that can result in someone literally, you know, walking away and a family not receiving justice or vice versa, somebody ending up in prison who should have had that immunity. Again, I mean, it's on our legislators to repeal this law and go back to the days of just common sense, self-defense, right? Juries aren't stupid. They can see if this is something that's a self-defense situation, especially with the advent of surveillance and and uh, iPhone cameras and body cameras and things like that. Sean, you were talking about Sean Foreman not needing to repeal it, but does this law need to be examined and maybe tweaked to prevent just the kind of implicit bias that Melba's talking about? Yes, that I agree with. Um, I, I think we, we're aware if we look at the statistics of the racial bias. I think if we look at that case in Pinellas County, if we didn't have a video of it, um, you know, we see in the video that uh, Mr. McLaughlin violently pushed to the ground Mr. Durka, Durka, right? And then he, and then he shot as uh, uh, McLaughlin was taking a step back. If we don't have the video, if we hear, well, he pushed me to the ground very forcefully and that's why I shot, that we might have had a different outcome in that case. Um, because of the racial component and who the jury may believe as to what the actual threat was there. So what I'm trying to say is yes, I don't know if the law itself needs to be tweaked, but the, the prosecutors uh, need to be aware of, of how it's been used in the past and be sensitive. Um, but you know, <laughs> and in the past I might have said let's repeal this law, but here we are in 2019, again we're seeing that it's in my opinion not necessarily being abused. We have to think of the flip side. What if you do need to stand your ground? Because we are living in a society that's very dangerous out there, people who may attack you unprovokedly. So I, I see the side it of it where it may be necessary. It paves the way for someone to, to defend themselves or their family. Although Melba said their so, self-defense. It's um, still always a defense, right? Yeah. That we're not trying to take that away. Stand your ground takes away that requirement that you have to retreat. You know, before, that duty to retreat. Before we end this segment, Scott, Travis, we, uh, during the roundtable on This Week in South Florida, we talked about Broward Schools Promise Program. 
vis-a-vis -vis the Broward State Attorney's diversion, juvenile diversion program and how the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Commission would like the legislature to merge those two. If you would, just talk, a, because I think there's so many similar mm -hmm. themes here in implicit bias, juvenile justice, consequence. What, uh, what's your take on that as the, as the person in depth in this reporting? I think that most people agree that the concept, the philosophy, of the Promise program is good. Now, there may be a few who want more punitive uh, action taken against kids, but for the most part, I think there's an agreement that the concept is good. The problem is that we, the reason why it was created was because in um, 2010, I believe it was, uh, or 2011, Broward's had the largest number of black students being arrested in the entire state of Florida. And there was an effort by the state attorney's office, the school district, the NAACP, um, some uh, the uh, sheriff Israel, we'll call them. yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and at the time, and they they all agreed this is a problem. And you know, I covered that at the time, and I said, yes, you're absolutely right. I would hear the these examples of a kid that would uh, throw a lollipop on a bus, and he was charged with disorderly conduct or you'd Battery. mouth off to a teacher yeah. and then instead of being sent to the principal's office you'd be sent to jail and that just didn't make any sense so I think the the idea of the program is, is extremely good but it also seems to duplicate a lot of what another program does and which is the civil citation program which is also uh, about giving kids a second chance and not uh, giving them criminal records for minor misdemeanor things that they do because they're stupid teenagers. And I think that's uh, the, and maybe if the school district had done a better job of being more open to sharing its information, there's a fear, especially among um, uh, Roslyn Osgood, who represents the black community in uh, Broward. On, on the school board. On the school board, that it's going that if you turn it over to police, that they're just it's, we're just going to go back to arresting kids again. That she doesn't have the trust in the system that would make it such that uh, it's the same thing's not going to happen. So what Broward ends up doing is almost treating it like a pre-diversion diversion program. So the idea of a diversion program is you get maybe three chances to uh, screw up, and then the fourth time they're going to say, okay, well this diversion's not working, we're gonna try yeah. to arrest you or do something different. Um, but Broward doesn't want any of offenses committed in the school district to count as one of those three offenses. So they want to be able to just have the, and they also have been using merging programs or, or using it for programs that are not criminal, like for just bad behavior, like for bullying and stuff like that. So, so, so I, you wouldn't send that information to the criminal justice system. Right, so I, I guess the concept is, as we've been talking about, is how do you mete out consequences that work without tagging a juvenile, a criminal for life or something that doesn't warrant that. And it's, I'm, uh, I'm gonna say thank you for being on this podcast with us today to pick up fresh content where the round table left off. Great to have you, Sean Foreman, Mella Pearson, Scott Travis. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Before we leave you today, a personal perspective about Jews, knowledge, and loyalty. This week, the president said, any American Jew who votes for a Democrat shows, quote, 
either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. Whoa. And the next day, the president didn't back down. He stepped it up. In my opinion, you vote for a Democrat, you're being very disloyal to Jewish people, and you're being very disloyal to Israel. Wow. What an amazing thing for a president to say, but then this president says amazing things all the time. But this meme about Jews being disloyal struck me as particularly offensive. I'm not Jewish, but as the ad for the, the bread used to say for a Jewish brand of bread, you don't have to be Jewish to love Levi's. Well, you don't have to be Jewish to love Israel. And I do love Israel. That does not make me disloyal to the United States. And American Jews who love and support Israel are not showing disloyalty to the U.S. This disloyalty trope is an old one. Essentially, it is a form of anti-Semitism. It is a way of labeling Jews as the other, which, of course, reached its zenith in Nazi Germany, which murdered six million Jews for being the other. President Trump says he is the least prejudiced person you'll ever meet, and it's true, he does have a Jewish son-in-law his daughter converted. But this is also the guy who said there were very fine people on both sides in Charlottesville, where one side, the white supremacists, marched by torchlight and chanted, Jews will not replace us. This week, the Anti-Defamation League called the president's comments anti-Semitic, as did many prominent Jewish leaders. All this may just be a way for the president shoring up his base and distract us from more pressing issues, like an economy that seems to be tanking largely from his mismanaged trade and tariff war with China. But please, Mr. President, lay off the anti-Semitic words and phrases. They are hurtful, prejudiced, and further divide a country already too divided. Help us come together. That is my perspective for this week. Hope you have a wonderful Sunday. Remember, as always, stay informed, get involved.